1: Hello, Bengals fans, and welcome to the first off-season edition of Bengals Chalk Talk. I am Matt Minick. my guest today from the Cincinnati Enquirer, the Bengals Beat Podcast, and I actually just found out doing a little prep for this interview, uh, SB Nation alum as well. Uh, it is Charlie Goldsmith. Charlie, how are you doing today?
2: Doing good. Uh, happy to be here. Um, thanks for doing some research. No, I'm just kidding. I'm uh, no, happy to talk Bengals.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so, been a little bit, uh, a little bit of a crazy year. Obviously, now this is your first year covering the Bengals, right?
2: First year covering the Bengals, but I'm from Cincinnati, so so this has okay. been on my radar for a while.
1: So they've been on your radar, but uh, you were, you know, you're a little bit more similar to me in the past, probably, where you're a little bit on the outside. Uh, now that you're actually getting the opportunity to to interact with the team, with the players, with the the coaching staff, you know, be be a part of some of these zooms and things like that. Um, was there anything that that surprised you in your in your first year dealing directly with this team?
2: That's a good question. um problem my answer to that is how much of it runs through Zach Taylor um, he He really sets the tone for the entire franchise and of course, that's what you expect from your head coach. Um, but aside from Joe Burrow, the Bengals don't really have a ton of um nationally public figures as good as Jesse Bates is as good as Carl Lawson and will Jackson. Um, as good as AJ Green has been, neither of them or none of them at any point in their career ha- have necessarily been, you know, the face of the franchise, the voice of the franchise. And Zach Taylor, along with Joe Burrow, really held that role, um, set the tone culture-wise. Um, we can discuss what happened during the season, set the tone energy-wise, optimism-wise. Um, again, the biggest, the biggest, I guess, surprise was how much of it um, was it, how, how Zach Taylor had his fingerprints on everything.
1: That's hmm. interesting. And, and we'll talk a little bit uh, in a little bit here about the, the Burrow interview uh, that happened yesterday in the herd. But um one thing that I noticed all year, and you know, there were, there were rumors that there was some, some, you know, malcontents in the locker room that maybe he would have, maybe he lost the locker room. Uh, obviously there's some truth to that. And you see the, the Carlos Dunlap situation, but you know, to me, I, I looked at all the other all zooms uh, and it really seemed like Taylor and Burrow were always on the same page. And, and when you when you mentioned how prominent both those figures are, uh, you know, it, it seemed to me like that. Well, there's no way that he's lost the locker room if he if he hasn't lost Burrow, at least he hasn't lost it completely. Um, so, I mean, from what you're saying about him setting, uh, you know, kind of setting the message, setting the tone. Is that kind of how how you see it as well, that it kind of goes from Taylor to Burrow and and down the line from there?
2: Two important things about that relationship. First is that um, Joe Burrow, kind of what he's famous for is how smart he is and how great of a leader he is. He was named a captain right away. Um, Those are the qualities you want in someone who theoretically would be evaluating a head coach. So him saying and supporting Zach Taylor the way he has carries more weight than – you know, that than almost any other quarterback's opinion. Um, Because of the ways uh, Joe Burrow understands both football and leadership, I think he's the most important and most relevant opinion on Zach Taylor. And it's not even close. So when you take that into consideration, you look at the fact that um, really the core of that offense uh, are strong believers in Burrow and that a lot of the young defenders who theoretically uh, would be the core pieces on the next good Bengals team, uh, feel the same way. You see the track towards, uh, I guess, the ideal situation where you don't have uh, you don't have upset players in the locker room. I think you saw enough positives there, leading from Burrow and then resonating across most of the rest of the core of the team, that um, that you saw some really good things in how the players viewed Zach Taylor.
1: So I mentioned the the Burrow interview. Uh he appeared on the on the herd yesterday, talked about a lot of things uh from his experience at, at Ohio State, you know, fighting back from uh from not being able to get on the field right away, uh, and kind of his attitude about that whole situation. He talked about his, his rehab outlook, he talked about his rookie year. Uh what what stood out to you in in that interview? What were some kind of key takeaways that you took from from that discussion?
2: I'll tell you what my favorite part was. My favorite part was when he talked about that Colts play and specifically how he started it. He says, he said, like, I say this all the time or or, I've said this before, but then he talked about what he saw from the linebackers on that uh, game-clinching interception he threw. Um, So clearly these are things he's replaying in his head and thinking back over. uh, Football is very clearly on the front of his mind. So of course that's always been something we knew about Joe Burrow, but we hadn't heard from him in two months. And it was kind of fun Mm -hmm. to be reminded of just some of the ways that, that he's different. Uh, of course, there was the news from it, which is Burrow saying, I'll, I'll see you next year. I'll be back. And, the smirk, uh, the, the, uh,
1: the look on his face when he said it, like it, it, that that was the best part. It was like, oh, he means it, it <laughs> he's not the, messing around.
2: <laughs> it was the sister moment to um, in August or September when uh, Joe Danneman from I think Fox 19 asked him, are you, you feel nervous and are you surprised you're not nervous? And he said, I've never been nervous. Uh, It's me we're talking about. So he said something like that. Um, It was the sister moment to that. And um, arguably a moment like that is bigger than beating the Steelers on Monday night. When you hear Joe Burrow talk about the Bengals and coaching staff and the momentum and the culture and the opportunity, the way that he did. I mean, that's what you sign up for when you get a rookie quarterback like that. Um, You, you, you make that move, You, you build that, So you can be in a position that Joe Burrow kind of showed he believes the Bengals are in. Now they have to back it up with wins. The Bengals have a problem with that. And um, we can talk about, you know, trajectory and and my read on the situation in a bit, but of course they have to back it up. But for a quarterback coming off a serious knee injury, that's as good of a response as I could even imagine hearing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, you know, I had the same thought uh, back, back to that, that previous interview with the, uh, Anything about anything in my history ever ever tell you that I'm nervous? Well, there's your answer. <laughs> you know, I was like, uh, there was, you know, it was, it wasn't quite cockiness. It was, it, it was, it was right at that swag level. You know what I mean? It Was right at that right right at that confidence swag level. And, and obviously, that is what you what you need in that guy. I really like too about the talking about the Colts play. Um, so we've got Zach Taylor, and zach taylor i mean he's you you got him off the mcveigh tree you're expecting mcveigh um and i think what we've seen is a very very stoic leader who has a lot of faith in what he's putting in um and isn't going to be isn't going to be turned away because of adversity you know isn't going to take a sharp course believes in what's going on but we haven't seen the mcveigh mind and that's what, that's what Burrow reminded me of there. Like, you, you know, like you, you see those interviews with, with McVay, where they ask him about like a, he just mentions like a random play from two years ago or something like that. And I, that was like, Oh geez, like burrow broke can really just pull up these things. And and I, like I posted the clip later online. It's was like, yep, that is exactly what happened in that situation. Um, but, but you mentioned, uh, you know, your, your, your take. And, you know, before we get into some of the stuff that's happened this week or not happened this week, um, you know, where do you, how do you feel about this team right now and kind of where things are are going uh, as the end of the year, obviously without Burrow for the, for the large chunk of the, of the end of the season?
2: So I think that um, you kind of have to look at it holistically in terms of, let's just take for example, Joe Burrow's entire rookie contract. Now, I've said this before on the Bengals B podcast. It's an organizational failure if you don't want to playoff game during Joe Burrow's rookie contract. Um, because of what that means financially, and what you can invest in other positions, and because of how good Joe Burrow already is, so kind of break it down and the track you have to take to get there. I think that at the end of next season, uh, if you're the Bengals or or even a Bengals fan, you have to be able to look at yourself in the eye and say, "I believe the Bengals can win play a playoff game or playoff games in 2022." It's hard to, or it's it's pretty impossible to make that case for 2021, especially. Um, considering it, it's, it's pretty unlikely they break the bank in free agency like they did last season. Um, I'm probably not going to pick the Bengals to win six or seven games, more than six or seven or, or eight games tops uh, unless they do something that really shocks me in the off season. But here's what I'll say. I'll say that, um, you know, the stretch Zach Taylor loves to talk about most in the season was the stretch it went, um, I think I have this order, right? Indianapolis, Cleveland, Tennessee. I think I have that order of game And you mentioned the McVay mind, um, the offensive scheme. Well, I'll say this, that was as good as it gets schematically and execution wise for the offense during that stretch. And if that stretch becomes kind of the season next year as Burrow works himself back, I do think you're in good shape. So, you know, I, I get the argument. I get where the Bengals are coming from.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you look at those games too, they only won one of those games but there are a couple of plays away from that that being a a, a three win stretch i mean they're they're in both those games you know the, the the burrow interception they talked about like that that could have been the game winning drive uh for them and uh, i think that, that was the game where the defense didn't get a single stop in this in the second half of that browns game defense gets one stop all of a sudden you know you're, you you got you got a chance there uh, that's, that's my favorite
2: game of the year real quick one because i think it was burrow's best game and two the bengals basically had no nfl or no uh no i don't want to be rude but they had none of their real starting quarterbacks active and the browns had none of their real starting wide receivers active so it was like um uh, Higgins, I forget his first name. Higgins and Donovan Peoples Jones going up against like LaShawn Sims and Tony Brown. Um, I just remember that being a really fun matchup between people who at the time had hadn't proven much in the NFL and, and kind of had some fun offensively.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and that was uh, yeah, that was the one that Odell went out in like the first drive, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and, then and
2: Gary Phillips went out and. Yep. Yeah,
1: Japanese I mean, yeah, that, that was. Uh, that, I mean, that was interesting, and you see in those in those situations that. Uh, I mean that that exposes the depth of the issues you have right there. But um, so let's let's talk about some more current events. Uh, it, it, there's a lot has happened this week. Admittedly, not as lo- much as as some fans would have liked, but a lot has happened. Uh, the Bengals and five assistants are parting ways. I say parting ways because you know report that Singleton wanted to go to Kentucky anyway. Either way, um, the big one is offensive line coach Jim Turner. What do you think uh, of, of the changes they have made uh, and you know, what, it, what it might mean for them moving forward?
2: I'll talk first about Turner because I actually have a different perspective on Turner than the, than the other ones. One, one of my favorite stories I wrote this year was I, I kind of dove deep into the relationship between Zach Taylor and Jim Turner. I did that about before when the offensive line was arguably at its worst when Burrow was on pace nearly to set the all-time NFL stats record. So take you back to 2011, Zach Taylor was the tight ends coach at Texas A&M. Turner was the offensive line coach. Obviously Taylor was a quarterback, not a tight end. And when they would have joint meetings, Taylor really leaned on Zach Turner for kind of the blocking elements, the run game elements that he didn't know as much about. Turner played a huge role in, in his upbringing as a coach. You have to think that connection helped Zach Taylor get his first opportunity in Miami where Jim Turner was. Um, you have to think that that relationship, um, really played a role at Cincinnati where they briefly worked together again. Um, Jim Turner, in a lot of ways has influenced the way Zach Taylor views how offensive linemen are going to be coached and views how, and it certainly influenced his upbringing as a coach. Um, he clearly has a, has a certain perspective on Jim Turner that he showed, hired him when he stuck up for him all season, um. It's just such a fascinating relationship to me. And I think that, you know, this parting ways is uh, not a move that that highlights urgency, but that shows that there is some urgency uh, that that shows uh, despite, you know, Zach Taylor still likes Jim Turner. He still uh, thinks he's a good football coach. He said that on Monday, Jim Turner is a very good football coach. Um, but that shows kind of, kind of the urgency that there needs to be some change, even if that comes, um from parting ways with someone who, who I, who, who who I know so closely. So that's, that's my perspective on Turner. I Hmm. kind of have different thoughts than the other coaches, but that's just such a unique relationship.
1: That's a good point. And and, um, I actually, I started off coaching as a a tight ends coach. And um, so I was a tight, I was the tight end GA at at South Dakota state. Hmm. And uh, the offensive line coach was a guy named Luke Meadows. And basically like the tight ends coach, you're kind of a babysitter. Like, because you're working, you're either working double team blocks with the with the tackles, or you're off with the quarterbacks and the receivers running routes. So you're kind of like you're around a lot of other coaches, and especially with with his background as a as a quarterback, you can see where you're gonna you're gonna lean on that guy. I actually uh, this year uh, looking at draft prospects, I absolutely loved Hakeem Adeniji. His a his a line coach is the guy I worked for at South Dakota State all those years ago I, like I, I called him up and i was like i was like hey is this guy really as good as i think or do i just like him because he does all the technique things that i think are important because you taught me uh but but yeah so i could definitely see where where, where that would tie in, especially as a as a quarterback that probably didn't spend a lot of time thinking about that stuff um so i mean you can make an argument that the o-line coach is just as important as a coordinator um uh, in today's NFL in but, college,
2: they often call the offensive line coach, the run game coordinator. Now. I mean, that's a That's a trend we're seeing. So I completely agree.
1: That's that's true. And, and really uh, Jim, Jim Turner, they didn't call him that, but he he was, I mean, the Bengals, they don't like to tell us who's in charge of what, uh, but that is one thing. And, and I think probably part of the defense of, of, of turnover the last couple of years, they, they talked about how he designed the run game be, because he was part of making it better at the end of last year. Um, so, I mean, that's going to be a big one. We've heard a lot of young names, uh, you know, of guys that, you know, who knows if they can handle that role or if if it's going to be more Callahan or exactly how they're going to juggle all that stuff. But I mean, they they didn't move on from any of the coordinators, uh, any of the actual coordinators, um, did, did that surprise you?
2: So here's, I kind of take it all into, I take it all into consideration the fact that they kept the coordinators and made multiple changes to position coaches, um, I, I don't, and I said this on the Bengals B podcast as well, I don't know how to feel about this, and here's why. Um, for example, on our podcast and our coverage, we spent a lot of time talking about kind of the Bengals, uh, some of their issues this season. For example, their inability to protect Joe Burrow, their inability to score in the third quarter, uh, their inability to get big stops, their inability to create a pass rush, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And throughout the process, um, when we ask players about those issues, when we asked coordinators, head coach, and just when we talked about those issues as media members, the names Nick Eason never came up, the names um, Bob ignell never came up, Jamal Singleton. These are just names we, we don't hear at all until we get to this point of the season to where they're parting ways. And definitely at each of those positions, there were problems. For example, the lack of production of Carlos Dunlap in Cincinnati was a problem um a wide receiver um the lack of production from AJ green <clears throat> and then the whole john ross situation was a, was a problem mm-hmm. um the running game i thought um statistically was one of the worst in the nfl and really was basically except for the jacksonville game and the pittsburgh game w- was a real problem all season um <clears throat> but since since i'm not on the practice field since I'm not as in touch with the interpersonal dynamics between say Bob McNeil and Bill Callahan and Zach Taylor. I'm not sure who's responsible for what. And and that makes moves like this so hard to to fix because well, you bring the new wide receivers coach. Well, how confident are we that that's gonna change anything? Maybe it's all the change you need. Maybe it doesn't do much at all. And I think that really, again, and what's gonna be a crucial year for Zach Taylor, we're gonna know really quickly how these coaching moves that we're going to see how impactful they really were. And if they're not as impactful, you know, you look up the totem pole uh, to the things that were main constantly.
1: Yeah. I mean, th- that is definitely interesting. And I mean, the biggest, to me, the biggest issues on the team were the O-line and the D-line. So, you know, the Turner thing makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think we all knew that that was the, that was the one that was going to happen. Uh, I think anybody would, if one change was going to be made, I think people would have predicted that. Um, Mick Eason, I mean, like, it kind of makes sense, too. Like, there were times when they were collapsing the pocket, but nobody could get off blocks. Like, they weren't, you know, using disengaged moves and stuff. And it was just like, well, are they, are they being told not to do that? What's what's going on? And, and I, also, a lot of heat has been put on Lou Anarumo about the, the whole situation with Carlos Dunlap, and who knows what happened uh, at the end of the day. But what we do know is that Nick Easton's the one that, you know, put the depth chart on his board and without having the conversation. So we've heard a lot about the lack of communication. We don't know that Lou's innocent, but we know that Nick Easton wasn't innocent in that situation. So, I mean, maybe that is um maybe that's part of it. Um, now, I'm sorry, <clears throat> go
2: ahead. Just real quick. It's funny. And, and again, I don't know which, um I don't know how they feel internally, but, you know, when Zach Taylor talked at the end of the season, he mentioned injuries at defensive tackle and in the secondary. The defensive tackle, I mean, the Bengals probably ha- had one of the worst groups of defensive tackles on paper in the NFL, just looking at where the guys they brought in were at the beginning of the season compared to where they were at the end of the season. And the secondary was very thin as well. Um, you know, kind of, kind of the surprising thing to me though is Luna Romo is a secondary guy and um, you know, if you wanted to see some massive coaching up jump, that might've been a place you could have seen it. Um, you know, that, that happened with Will Jackson and Darius Phillips. It didn't happen as much with LaShawn Sims and the other guys down the, down the depth chart. Um, considering the circumstances, I thought that, you know, the interior lineman, Christian Covington, I thought was as good as you could expect. Marcus Hunt finished the year really strong. Sam Hubbard finished the year really strong. When he was healthy. Carl Lawson had a career year. But again, that shows you it's so hard to divide up who's responsible for what and, and what the reasons for them playing the way they are.
1: Yeah, we're probably not talking enough about how good Marcus Hunt was just because the team was so bad. Um, but he did—he did some real. Like people were kind of people kind of rolled their eyes picking him back up. Uh, but, but yeah, he, he did some really good things for this team down the stretch. What was ironic
2: uh, was, um, just sorry to interrupt. Um, before the season, the Bengals beat podcast, we were talking about, well, what are realistic expectations for Geno Atkins this year? That was a hot topic. And, um, <clears throat> what I did was I looked at all the defensive, interior defensive linemen at that age, and basically only five, uh, players over the last 10 years had played uh defensive tackle at the age that Geno Atkins was this season. And one of them was Marcus Hunt, who I think is a year older than Gino, you know too. <laughs> yeah. So then later in the year I got to ask Marcus, well, what's it like being a 33-year-old interior defensive lineman? It's obviously pretty hard. And so uh, it was ironic, it came full circle.
1: That's pretty funny. And and basically complete physical opposites playing the same position too. <laughs> the uh, the the giant Estonian there. Um, so uh, Uh, so obviously the dynamic is going to change at the, uh, the head coaching position this year. However, uh, I know you're a Northwestern guy, so I feel obliged uh, as long as I have you here to ask you about Pat Fitzgerald, who is getting some buzz. He's been linked to the, the Falcons, the Texans, the Lions. Uh, what do you, what do you think of Fitzgerald and how he might transition to the NFL?
2: Pat Fitzgerald has been getting NFL looks for about 10 years now. <laughs> um, it's a funny story My my favorite story. He's come out and said this. Um, so the, I believe the CEO of the Packers is Mark Murphy, who, was the, who went to that job from being the athletic director at Northwestern. And it, it's pretty well understood that um, Fitz had an opportunity to take the job when they gave it to Matt Lafleur, And uh, Fitz was sitting at the breakfast table. He asked his sons, I think I should go to Green Bay? They said, nope. And he said, okay. And uh, he stayed at Northwestern. Um, his whole life has been Northwestern one and two choosing to stay at Northwestern. I mean, it's pretty clear he'd be a great NFL coach just because so many NFL teams have been interested in him. I think that um, in 99% of cases, coaching firms are really smart. And uh, the way that he runs a program, the energy he brings, the just the leadership mindset he has, it kind of has a more aggressive Zach Taylor almost. Um, Someone who is a little more rah-rah, but still has that businessman-like CEO approach to a program. Um, I think he'll be a great NFL coach, but the question is, does he want to do it? Um, I guess we'll see, but I see him sticking at Northwestern for next year.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, I, I don't know. There's something to be said for, you like what you're doing, you like where you're at, and you're having success, just do it. You know what I mean? Uh,
2: and he's a, he's a guy, his whole life has been about putting Northwestern on the map. He did it as a player when he led Northwestern to the Rose Bowl. Did as an assistant coach, kind of helping helping that era in the early two thousands when they really spiked for the first time consistently. Yeah, was and that, with, that was, was
1: that was that with Randy Walker? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Th- those are some good teams too. Yeah,
2: and then uh, a great offense. That's a whole different story. Yeah. But,
1: um, well, they, yeah, they were running the they were running the spread and the zone reading stuff like before everybody else was running it, before correct. everybody was running. It. Yeah.
2: Correct. Um, and, and then obviously as a head coach leading Northwestern, just the places it's never been. You know. The the climb that he's led Northwestern to on it. So this is going to be, hang on for a second. What he's done at Northwestern in building a stable, very good to great football team is probably harder than what Marvin Lewis did in Cincinnati. Building the Bengals from a team that obviously had some dysfunction, some issues in the 90s and early 2000s. Building the Bengals into a Marvin did into a team that made what five straight playoffs, um, Fitz kind of made that similar rise at Northwestern, and even big facing even bigger obstacles. So he he'd be a great NFL coach. It's just as he want to do it?
1: Yeah, and he, I mean you talk about the Packers, like how many Super Bowls would he have to win with the Packers before he's Vince Lombardi to them? Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, and he's like he he didn't even have to win a national championship ever, and he's gonna, and he's Vince Lombardi at Northwestern. You know, like he's he's got that you know that 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 esteem locally so there's uh definitely definitely positives to that so uh now we talked about like how it's uh it's difficult to to separate you know what's important whose job is whose um you know we talk about this the secondary the the D line you know like look they weren't getting a pass rush but they also didn't have a number two corner so you know if Trey Wayne's is out there does the pass rush look pretty good you know, you know so there, there's all these factors that come up and and we're facing the same sort of dilemma as we, as you look at free agency, um, a lot of big names out there, William Jackson, you know, how bad is the secondary without William Jackson, Carl Lawson, like, do, do they have any pass rush without Carl Lawson? Um, who, like, and, and I just mentioned those two, uh, but I mean, who do you think should be the, the top priorities, uh, to be re- retained before free agency starts here?
2: Well, I think the top priority is Jesse Bates. Obviously that's not a conversation you have until later, mm-hmm. but, um, he makes probably better splash plays than any Bengals defensive player I can, I can remember. Uh, I'm probably missing someone. And and if so, be angry on Twitter and, and at me and I'll, <laughs> and I'll apologize. But um, the way that he saved a Bengals secondary that, as we discussed, really struggled for stretches of the season, kept the Bengals afloat. Um, he, I, You don't need me to tell you how good Jesse Bates is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> after that, here, here's my read on the situation. You can't go into the draft needing to draft for need. Um, I'm actually dabbing in right now and I I haven't gone far enough to have a conclusion yet, but I'm I'm exploring what's the hit rate when you splurge in free agency for a tackle versus when you draft a tackle highly. And ironically, just based off where the Bengals are picking in the first round, it's almost even what they would pay uh, an offensive tackle in free agency versus what they would Pay an offensive tackle with the third pick. I have it up. Uh, Andrew Thomas oh, really? is eight point one, and um, probably the most realistic thing it seems for the Bengals would to be pay, to pay an offensive lineman what between eight and ten, uh, maybe go up to twelve, but but that's not a huge difference from um, from a big from a cap perspective. That's a very small percentage of the cap. Mm-hmm. Um, so so again, do they get an early jump on that in free agency, um, or do they? They have so many needs, they they just kind of even in free agency have to jump on the best player available in addition to building the line. They have cap room. Um, they need to build the line and then then jump at the best player available. So then in the draft, you're in position to get whoever comes to you.
1: Yeah, they have cap room and they're probably gonna be opening some more up, you know, that the with the reports about uh that looks like they're gonna be some way mutually parting ways with with, with Gino. Um you know, that obviously, it, this isn't next year's cap, but they paid AJ Green eighteen million last year. I mean, and, and uh, you know, going off some numbers that I've seen, that AJ's uh, AJ's eighteen million alone could be enough. It could be close, but could be enough to give Carl Lawson and uh, and William Jackson the the raises that they're probably going to be looking for. It's,
2: uh, it's but- wild. Bengals paid more money to wide receivers this season than any. Uh, team in the NFL, um, but, but, but a, a huge chunk of that was AJ Green, who yeah. was a third wide receiver this year, who went stretches of games without catches. And another huge chunk of that was John Ross. Um, it's a wild team roster. I'm, I'm digging, for that story I mentioned, I'm also kind of digging into the structure of the Bengals salary cap and how it compares to other teams. It's fascinating. The Bengals, um, I think, have the 24th most money invested in the offensive line, which is honestly higher than I thought. Because um, let me let me pull it up. Because Bobby Hart and uh, th- for this past season, Bobby Hart and Trey Hopkins were their highest paid offensive linemen, and neither of them, I know, were in the top thirty at their position. Uh, neither of them was among the highest thirty paid tackles or highest thirty paid interior offensive linemen. Um, I'm not gonna pull it because that, that, that's that's in the ballpark we're talking about. Yet, <clears throat> despite the fact that <clears throat> twenty teams paid more for one offensive tackle then the Bengals were paying for both of their offensive tackles combined. The Bengals still, you know, there were still a lot of teams paying less for their offensive line than the Bengals. And that's a big reason. Cause uh, the Bengals are paying what, four, uh, 10, $11 million a year on centers. Um, when you are probably eight or nine, actually, when you add up uh, Trey Hopkins and Billy Price's contract, that's about the cost collectively of the best center in the NFL. It's pretty close. Um you know, like, you,
1: and and it, uh, it's he's making like three million too. Like, yeah. <laughs> and he, he, was never, he was never even active, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's <laughs> wild how the pieces all fit together. Because again, no one <clears throat> for this past season was making a ton, but they all were kind of making some. And because some of those pieces are under contract, it kind of makes it strange heading into an off season where they need to invest in the offensive line.
1: So I think you and I are definitely from the same school of thought uh, that. You know, you, you replace your needs, at least at a minimum level, you replace your needs uh, in free agency. And then, you, you know, like the the top three tackles go in the, in the in the top four picks for some unknown reason. Like you're not all of a sudden jumping on a guy that probably should be taken in the mid-teens. Um, so we're definitely on the same page with that. Now, you said they've got money. You know, we know that they, they have some ability to free up some money as well. Um I mean they spent a ton of money on the defense last year. I mean, you think there's any chance we we see something similar this year, uh, you know, particularly with going after uh offensive line?
2: I say this, I say that <clears throat> first of all when you look at the Bengals um just depth chart wise almost if they add to it so they're going to add some wide receiver, um someone whether it's in the draft or free agency, they they're, they're going to add some value there um and, and put something into that. So, take that aside, if if the Bengals then can add a a really good starting guard and a really good starting tackle the Bengals will have had will have made high investments into every position on the offense and from a team building perspective that's kind of what you want you want guys that you believe in organizationally at every position so they're close and my opinion is that why not just go out and have a top 10 top five offensive line in the NFL um the Bengals defense was able to play well enough to win against bad offenses. And they did that with the pieces at the interior defensive line, at linebacker, you could argue, and then in the secondary, um, so, some lowly paid guys across those positions. So you can talk yourself into the Bengals having a great offense and then having a defense that with Wayne's Reed returning can get you just enough next season. So again, I think, of course, they have to add someone a wide receiver to do that. Um, really priority one, I think, is going out and getting one of the better offensive lines in the league. Um, You know, for the first time uh, since at least 2016, as far as the database I used went back, have one of the above average paid offensive lines in the NFL. Invest organizationally in that, Um, and that can fix a lot of your issues offensively. It can let you have the ball longer. It can let you establish the run. It can let you play with a lead. That helps the defense, too.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think there's a couple of things to that, that, you know, number one, like we, like we discussed earlier, Turner was designing the run game. Um, Whoever you bring in, if it's a young guy, maybe he's not going to do that. Maybe rest more on Callahan Um, or, you know, maybe just for the idea of something. So that's one reason you would want better players, right. (laughs) To support the young guy. Uh, But, but also uh, you know, just the idea that if they're talking to good candidates, you know, it's probably going to come, I mean, it's got to come up in that conversation. Like, hey, what are we going to do? You know, what kind of money are you going to are you going to give us? You know, you don't have to name names, but are you willing to play pay X and bring in a tackle?
2: That's uh, actually a great point. It, it's part of the recruiting tool for offensive line coach almost. Um, yeah. That, that would be my first question. If I was interviewing for the job, who am I going to get to work with here? How much am I going to, because I, I would imagine the funnest part of being a coach is, is free agency and getting to say, oh, here I, I want this guy, I want that guy, and it's even better than the draft because if you stand on the table, in a lot of cases, you might be able to get him. Um, I
1: mean, especially in Cincinnati, where where yeah. you have there's no GM, so you know you have a little bit more of a, a say over that.
2: Yeah, I mean that that's got to be fun, and so again, that's probably part of the recruiting process. Um, that's definitely I would I would imagine that's definitely coming up in these meetings. What am I going to get to do if I'm the offensive line coach here?
1: I, I think it'd be really interesting too because we know that the Bengals have not put a ton of value in the interior line, and obviously they're paying they're paying Trey pretty well, but uh, mm-hmm. but they're also pretty good at rewarding their own. And you know he's a he's a guy that he took it took him several contracts to get to his his, his second contract uh, with with all the time he spent in the practice squad and everything. But um, y- you know we we know they don't they don't really do that. So look, everybody loves to watch watch Joe Thune and in, in, in the Patriots and and dream about that. I, 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 I'm not going to be negative about it, but man, that would be a huge departure for them to pay what he's going to be asking for. Um, and again, I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but if it does, it's kind of like, all right, all right. Th- you're living up to that new day slogan now. Like this is, this is definitely something different. And I mean, it would, that would definitely be a major, a major tone setter there.
2: And I'm pulling up my, um, my spreadsheet I mentioned earlier, because I went through um, for for outside offensive linemen and for inside offensive linemen. And kind of the most surprising takeaway was that there's what um, 37 minus um, 37 minus seven is 30. So there's 30 uh, interior guard or interior offensive linemen making between 12 and uh, 12 and $8 million. So basically what that shows you is every team's got one of those guys. And while while this has been something the Bengals haven't done, they're clearly on the outside looking in and not investing in their interior offensive linemen. Um, We're heading into the season. Uh, Xavier Suofilo is, was your highest paid guy on that front. Um, that's not how other NFL teams are building themselves. And um, again, my opinion is obviously it's up to Duke Tobin and the coaching staff what the Bengals end up doing was – Again, build one of the better offensive lines in the NFL and invest in this area that basically every NFL team is investing in. Um, Cause that makes you a lot better. Clearly. I mean, you know, how many games this year? No disrespect to these guys, but did Alex Redmond start on the offensive line and um, Shaq Calhoun started a game. Um,
1: yeah. He can, I mean, Fred, left Fred guard. was starting he a guard. guard. He started we, a left guard.
2: Yeah. So If you can get someone who's a proven very good guard in that tier, it's not that it's kind of like a baseball argument. It's kind of like replacing a fifth starter with a number two guy in the rotation. Um, Mm. Huge. And I don't know why you don't make that, make that jump because that would clearly do so much for the offense.
1: And I, I I hear people mentioning Suofilo as like somebody that's making too much he's not making that much. Like he's making a lot for the Bengals, but he's not making that much. So, I mean, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, you know, getting rid of a fifth starter for, for, uh, for a two, like, to me, it's the same sort of thing where it's like, all right, well, we don't need to cut that guy. Cause we know they're going to get banged up and we don't want it to shuffle things around. And, and, you know, that was a guy, um, you know, the previous year Sue Fielder came in and played very well for the Cowboys for five games when they, when they needed him, he wasn't, he wasn't starting at the beginning of the year, but um you know, we definitely need to maintain that depth because we know that's been a problem for this team as seasons go on.
2: I mean, of course, you – you know, we – we. I, I was joking with a couple other Bengals media members. Um, B.J. Finney probably would have started against Tennessee had he been uh, eligible because of COVID protocols. Remember, the Bengals make that trade um, before that game. Their entire offensive line goes out. That was the game Shaq mm-hmm. Calhoun started and then got replaced by Quentin Spain, who they signed two days before. And
1: yeah, and Michael was was Michael Jordan sick that morning, but not with COVID. Michael, yeah, yes,
2: Michael Jordan was sick that morning. <laughs> and he and was the last COVID. one. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and uh, no, and B.J. Finney was on the Bengals. He just wasn't available because he was flying in and in quarantine after coming in from Seattle. So, you know, uh, obviously B.J. Finney by the end of the season wasn't ranking too highly in the organizational depth chart on the interior for for the interior offensive line. Mm-hmm. So again, that, you know, Keaton Sutherland was active a lot of games this year. If you can go into next season with Michael Jordan and Fred Johnson as your eighth and nine guys or your seventh and eighth guys, that's, that's the kind of things that, that, that's the kind of depth that that teams with good offensive lines have.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And And now you're building, like, it's not over. Like, Jordan's career isn't over. Like he's mm-hmm. still getting reps. He's still going to get in there. They're, they're going to get hurt. He's going to have to go in there. I'll tell you now, this. Now, you know, he's the next guy. So that's, that's a lot better than who's the next guy behind him.
2: I'll guarantee you this. If Michael Jordan's with the Bengals this year, I will, I would bet that he starts a game just because something happens to a guard who, who gets sure. banged, banged up or something. Um, He's the guy that the coaches stood on the table for kind of this offseason when they didn't add a second guard. It was because they believed in him and his potential. Yeah. Obviously a big guy early in the season. Jonah Williams spoke a ton about how they're kind of the perfect dynamic duo for Jonah who's more agile on the outside and Jordan who's just a big guy left guard. Um, you know, he His NFL career is not done. And um, if he can find a better role in Cincinnati, I mean, that's great. That, that's ideal when you're building an offensive line.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it'll be interesting, too, to see, like, find the guys. Don't rely on this. But but it'll be interesting to see if they go out and uh, get a better offensive line coach, how a Michael Jordan develops, you know, from the backup role, how he can develop. Uh, and even even Jonah, you know, like, who's basically yeah. was a rookie this year, how much of a step he can take forward. Um, all right. So, again, my guest today was uh, Charlie Goldsmith. Uh, Charlie, where can people follow you and your work?
2: Uh, follow me on Twitter at Charlie G underscore, underscore. Sorry about that. <laughs> and uh, everything we're doing on Cincinnati.com and the Bengals beat podcast,
1: the good old John Sheeran double underscore. I like it. Uh, so definitely give Charlie a follow. Uh, they do some great work with the Inquirer. Uh, You know, listen to that podcast too. Definitely. You got plenty of time to listen to po- Bengals podcast. So listen to that one too um, and, and give him a follow uh, some, some really good insights that you get out of that group. Um So we're going to keep coming with with great Bengals content all year long too. So make sure you continue to download and uh, and watch us on the YouTube channel as well. Um, I just put out a tweet about uh, like, Hey, would you guys like it if I covered every bank, every borough game over the next 10 weeks, Uh, which was met very well. So we'll be doing that. So uh, subscribe on YouTube and I'll I'll be covering uh, burrows throws game by game over the next 10 weeks. So uh, thank you. For for joining me today Charlie thank you everybody else for listening and uh, who day we're Yeah
0: we're coming for us you hit a crowd we're coming for us